0: Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. If you're a fan of the show, write us a review, and tell your friends about us. And if you donate at thebittersweetlife.net, you'll not only help keep the show going, you'll get a handwritten thank you note in the mail. And we will never forget you. Also, if you want to sponsor the show, contact us through thebittersweetlife.net. And if you're new, welcome, I'm Katie Sewell. This show begins in Rome right after I quit my job as a senior producer for public radio and moved there. This was totally out of my character. My co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer, author of Midnight in the Piazza, and she's my childhood friend. And she also moved to Rome, but over a decade ago. She flew there with no real plan and managed to stay. Don't be afraid to start way back at the beginning. I promise you'll be entertained. And don't be afraid to start thinking about how you might want your life to be different. We're all on this journey together. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined in San Francisco by New York Times bestselling author Lori Gottlieb. Lori is a psychotherapist who also writes the weekly Dear Therapist column in The Atlantic, where she's also a contributing editor. And her latest book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. It's a book that's currently being made into a television show, I hear. And as we record, it's currently in the top five of the New York Times best-selling nonfiction lists. list. Thank you so much for being here, and congrats on it being such a hit. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So I guess I just want to start with a, just a couple basic questions. When should a person look for therapy?
1: I think so many people are reluctant to look for therapy because they have a lot of misconceptions about what it is. So what I wanted to do in the book was really bring people into the therapy room so they can see for themselves what the experience is like. I think if they're struggling in any way, they should look for therapy. We often tend to minimize our struggles, like, well, I have a roof over my head and food on the table, so what do I have to complain about? Or what do I have to be depressed or anxious about? But I think pain is pain, and if you're struggling, it can really benefit you to talk to somebody.
0: I know some people listening have the hangup of thinking, if I need to go to therapy, that means I'm broken. Do you have some sort of response to that?
1: I think it's a sign of strength, not a sign of being broken. I think the people who don't come to therapy, they tend to break even more. I think it's different. It's kind of like with our physical health. If, if you're having chest pain, you're not going to say, well, I'm broken, so I'm not going to go see the cardiologist. <laughs> you're actually going to go get it checked out. If we have emotional pain, we tend to place a value judgment on it instead of saying something isn't right, and I'm going to go get it checked out. Yes, yeah, so We would only think, oh... If my spouse died and I lost my job and this happened
0: and that happened, then I might go. But not if I'm just trying to make a decision, should I quit my job and move
1: away? Right. And I think that people feel like they have to be in a major crisis to come to therapy. And so much of what we do in therapy is we help people to see their blind spots, to see what is not working in their lives and also what is working so we can build on those strengths. Ultimately, I think a lot of therapy is about helping people to relate to themselves better and to relate to other people better so that whatever difficulties they're having in their life, they can navigate their lives more smoothly.
0: One of the things that you established kind of early on is the problem with the presenting problem, which is the, the problem people come to you for. Usually there's like one core issue. Can you explain what that means?
1: The presenting problem is the story that people come in with, which is usually about somebody else causing them distress. (laughs) Um, You know, my partner is doing this. My boss is doing this. My child is doing this. And that's real. But at the same time, I want to help people see how they got into that situation in the first place. So I'm listening not just to what I like to say, the lyrics, which is the story they're telling, but the music under the lyrics. What is the underlying pattern or struggle that got you into this situation? So we're not just solving this one problem, but we're helping to make sure you don't end up in that situation again. Do
0: you think that most people have patterns or is everybody sort of following a, a written script in their head
1: very much so and I think the problem is that we aren't aware of what that script is it's almost like somebody to mix metaphors here somebody else is driving the car you know, A lot of times people come in with a faulty narrative, a faulty story like I'm unlovable or nothing will ever work out for me or in the case of one patient in the book, I'm better than everybody else. <laughs> and, and those narratives tend to drive the way that we relate to people, the choices we make, how we end up, where we end up, the conflict that we have with other people.
0: So one more basic question before we really get into it is what should a person be looking for when they're trying to find a therapist?
1: That's a really important question because study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of therapy isn't the therapist's training or experience or the modality they use, all of which are important to be clear. But the most important factor is the relationship you have with your therapist. So if you go to a first therapy session and you feel like this person, I felt understood by this person and this person was easy to talk to, then I would go back for a second session. If you didn't feel that way, I might look at another therapist just to see. Now, if you go to a second therapist and you also don't feel understood or that the person was easy to talk to, maybe the common denominator there is you and that might be part of your issue that you're not aware of
0: and since so many people listening are not in their home country is there any advice you can give to people who are a little bit more
1: displaced you can start by looking at the providers in your area online like on psychology today or just google in your area and you'll get a sense of somebody just at least their approach or you might find something about their practice that interests you word of mouth is good too and i think just going in and seeing what the experience is like.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because I, I have a therapist now that I really love. But before that, I went to two men, two different men. And I did find that the difference for me between seeing a woman and seeing a man was that with a man, I was trying to be really entertaining. Eventually, I'm just like, well, we're telling some pretty funny stories here, but I'm not actually getting anything. You do write in the book about how we go in sometimes to therapy, trying to be like, look how great I am. Don't you love me? I mean, one of the things you even wrote was, many patients secretly wish to be their therapist's only patient, or at least their favorite one. What is that about? Like, why do we have to feel that special?
1: I think when you have this deep emotional experience with somebody, you can't help but wonder what they think of you and and want to be liked. And I had the same experience with my therapist that my patients have with me, which was I would leave and I would see this woman in the waiting room if she came early for her appointment. And I would think she looks so nice and, and she looks like, you know, her sessions are probably much easier than mine. And I wonder if he dreads my sessions. At one point, I even asked my therapist if he likes me. I think it's natural to want your therapist to like you, but I also think that there's a performative aspect when people first come in because they don't necessarily want to get to the real issues. They want to be funny. They want to be perceived as kind of smart and entertaining. But therapy is not a cocktail party. We're not interested in that.
0: So is there a way to get around that? Or is that just as we go in to a first therapy appointment, we need to think you're not at a cocktail party. Exactly that notion.
1: Well, the therapist is much more interested in getting to know you. And the better way to get to know you is to kind of drop the the performative veneer that I think a lot of us have when we're out in the world. If you're at an actual barbecue or cocktail party, um, you're trying to impress people. The therapist doesn't want to be impressed. The therapist wants to see who you really are. And you have to drop that mask and really make yourself available in a different way.
0: So I have a friend who says that when it comes to therapy, they've never been able to tell the truth in a session. They'll tell part of the truth, but they can't tell the whole truth. How important is it that you're able to tell the actual truth or get around
1: that difficulty of what it means to be honest? So much of the reason people don't tell the truth has to do with shame. Part of it is that they're not telling the truth by omission, right? So they're telling, as you said, they're telling Parts of what they want to talk about, but the parts that are most shameful to them, they're hiding. And I think everybody comes in with secrets. And it's natural, by the way, to keep secrets. We keep secrets all the time. Everybody does from the world. We keep secrets from people close to us. And I want to say there's a difference between privacy and secrets. So the privacy are the, your partner doesn't need to know every thought, feeling, emotion that you have. And it's healthy if they don't. But I think in therapy, people keep secrets from the therapist and they keep secrets from themselves. With the truth, they feel that if you knew the truth of who I am, you would judge me. You would feel differently about me. You would not like me as much. And the opposite is actually true. The more people reveal the truth of who they are, the more likable they become, the more relatable they become. Why is that? Because I think that the truth is based in something universal. I might not share your exact experience, but I share the emotions behind it. I understand the emotions behind it. And I think that that makes you real. And I think that that's how we connect as humans is through these real universal experiences as opposed to the version of the story that's been edited or or made more pretty.
0: That's interesting. It just reminded me, my sister does a, a blog called Be Brave, Not Perfect because she struggled with perfectionism her entire life. Is there a root cause for things like that? Are those fundamental, like perfectionism?
1: Perfectionism is definitely out there. And I think, especially for women, because they think they feel pulled in so many different directions and they feel like they have to do all of these things right. So they have to be the perfect parent, they have to be the perfect partner, they have to be the perfectly successful employee, right? And it's hard to do all of those things well when you're pulled in so many different directions. And I also think that perfectionism has to do with this idea of how unkind we are to ourselves, that if we listen to the voices in our heads, we're so critical of even the slightest mistake. I'm going to put mistake in quotes just because, again, with the perfectionism. And we would never talk that way to our friends if if they were less than perfect. But when we're less than perfect, we can be so hard on ourselves. We lack compassion for ourselves.
0: Okay. So one thing that you write, and I love this, and I'm going to have you read some things too, but this is the little quotes I'll handle. But you write, the things we protest against the most are often the very things we need to look at. I like how simple you wrote that. So from a therapist's perspective, how do you start to recognize those denials, the things that we're protesting
1: against too much? Well, for example, my therapist said to me that I was hoping that he would save me. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm the head of a household. I'm I'm not a damsel in distress. But he was right. I secretly wanted to be saved. Whenever people say something that gets your raises your hackles usually there's a nugget of truth in there
0: raises your hackles what if it makes you cry somebody else once said and we've talked about it on the show a couple times if there are certain things that make you tear up even if it's the dumbest commercial sometimes that there might be something there there might be something that is buried there or a desire a longing that's there
1: that's right and in fact um in the book there's a patient that i write about i call her charlotte in the book and she sees this car commercial and she just starts it's like this dog and this mother and you know it's like and she starts sobbing and she tells me about it and it brought up a lot of issues for her around her own longings for a mother and what happened with her mother. So I think that sometimes Our bodies speak for us when we don't have the words.
0: And then how do you as a therapist get the patient to start connecting those things?
1: I first make them more aware of what their body's doing in the room. So if they're tearing up, what are the tears about? Let's not just wipe the tears and move on and keep telling the story. Let's pause for a second and try to understand the tears a little bit more. Also, if say they're sitting there and their leg is shaking up and down, are you anxious about something? So you have to really look at body language too. It's not just the words that are being spoken in the room, but it's the whole picture. Hmm.
0: That's really interesting. So th- is that what they, they teach you that in training to sort of watch for the fidgeting and the like subtle cues?
1: I think you're looking at everything. You're looking at pauses. You're looking at where their eyes are going. And it's not because they're under a microscope. I mean, it's a very real interaction. It's not like we're going to sit here and, and analyze every single thing you're doing. It's more that we're with you. And if you're crying, let's, let's talk about that for a second instead of just what we would do out in the world, which is you wipe your tears and you continue talking.
0: Is there any way that if a person's listening who is not in therapy and maybe they're on some assignment where they couldn't get into therapy for a period of time, is there a way to sort of work on these things on your own to try to figure out what these denials or blind spots are or do you really need to talk it out with somebody else?
1: It doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist, but I think that we learn so much from other people. We can't see ourselves clearly because of our blind spots. And so there are ways that we shoot ourselves in the foot over and over. There are ways that we have pain around things that we're not necessarily aware of, but they definitely inform the choices that we make or or they inform our behaviors. Other people will point those out to you because they have the vantage point of not living your life. Um, So it doesn't have to be a therapist. A therapist is particularly skilled at doing it in a way that maybe you can hear better than if somebody close to you says it, because if somebody close to you says it, you might feel like it's a criticism. And I think therapists are able to help you see it from a point of view of, I'm trying to help you and I care.
0: Okay. So one of the other things that we deal with a lot on the show, or at least touch on here and there is fear. The fear that It's too late, the fear that that you might ruin your life. But to lay out all the fears,
1: I thought I'd have you read this little passage of, of, you know, just this paragraph here about what are we afraid of? Sure. What are we afraid of? We are afraid of being hurt. We are afraid of being humiliated. We are afraid of failure and we are afraid of success. We are afraid of being alone and we are afraid of connection. We are afraid to listen to what our hearts are telling us. We are afraid of being unhappy and we are afraid of being too happy. In these dreams, inevitably, we're punished for our joy. We are afraid of not having our parents' approval and afraid of accepting ourselves for who we really are. We are afraid of bad health and good fortune. We are afraid of our envy and of having too much. We are afraid to have hope for the things that we might not get. We are afraid of change and we are afraid of not changing. We are afraid of something happening to our kids, our jobs. We are afraid of not having control and afraid of our own power. We are afraid of how briefly we are alive and how long we will be dead. We are afraid that after we die, we won't have mattered. We are afraid of being responsible for our own lives. Sometimes, sometimes it takes a while to admit our fears, especially to ourselves. So what do we do with all that, with all those fears? Right. And and I think that sometimes we're not aware of everything that we're afraid of, and we hold ourselves back because of that. So it's the reason that we don't take risks. It's the reason that we won't go after the things that we really want. It's the reasons that we self-sabotage when happiness is right in front of us. There's a word that I talk about in the book, cherophobia, which is fear of happiness, that for people especially who grew up with any kind of trauma or just experienced trauma in their lives, They're very afraid of happiness because it feels very precarious. Joy feels like, you know, the other shoes about to drop, you know, so the minute they get close to something like happiness, they immediately sabotage it. And what about that fear of change, which is just such a
0: basic thing that we will all have to live with? I mean, as we talk... We just recently watched Notre Dame burn. Didn't happen to me personally, I wasn't there, but uh, it was a big change for a lot of us. It was a shaking thing. So obviously we can't avoid change, but then when you're asking these big questions of, what if I had this dream, is it ever too late for me to make that change? How do you address that kind of basic fear?
1: Well, there's this, Great quote in the book um, the nature of life is change and the nature of people is to resist change I think change is hard because most people know exactly what they need to do to change or they come to that conclusion but they don't change because there's loss with change that you have to give up the familiar even if the familiar was miserable or unpleasant you still have to give up what's comfortable to you and then you have to go into this place of uncertainty and you don't know what you're going to find and sometimes it's easier to cling to the familiar we have this saying about therapy that insight is the booby prize of therapy meaning that you can have all the insight in the world but if you don't make changes out in the world the insight is useless so you can say oh now I know why I do that in my marriage but if if you go home and you still do exactly the same thing, the insight won't help you at all. You have to make change when you leave the office.
0: And what about death, the fear of death? How much is that driving our general sort of paralysis in life?
1: I think two things about that. One is that I think we deny death completely until, until we're faced with it. But I think the other thing is that we don't think about it enough. So on the one hand, um, you know, one of the patients that I treat in the book is a young newlywed who goes on her honeymoon and she comes back and she thinks she might be pregnant because she feels something in her breast and she's very excited because they wanted to get pregnant. But it's breast cancer. And ultimately, she ends up with a terminal cancer. And she asked me to accompany her on this path toward her death and I think my instinct even as a therapist was to deny death completely which was to kind of protect her feelings oh you know those experimental treatments might work Um, you know as opposed to dealing with the reality and she really forced me to look death in the eye with her and I think the healthy part of that is that you don't need a terminal illness to have an awareness of death that a healthy awareness of death meaning not dwelling in it But being aware of it can help us to live our lives more intentionally. So she really helped me to think about what are the things I want to do in life and what am I waiting for?
0: Did you make any change from that relationship?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, I mean, I think that's what my journey is in the book, too, is, you know, writing this book that I didn't want to write and feeling like I was doing meaningless work and finding a way to find meaningful work doing things differently in relationships and making sure that I was being more intentional about my relationships. Really appreciating a lot of the things that I already had as opposed to dwelling on the things that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And also thinking about every day when you wake up, what do you want to do with this day? This is limited time. And again, not not in a way where it where it consumes you, but in a way where you say, you know, I'm going to make sure that I don't spend three hours on Twitter today.
0: Okay, so uh, since we've touched on it a little bit, grief, this show has been around for the last five years. And we've talked about grief because it's come up in very dramatic ways. And we've lost several people during the course of this show. What about grief, not in the just the death sense, which we've definitely talked about, but in the loss sense like that, the grief that comes from moving abroad and then having to move home or the grief that comes from not having the opportunity to do something anymore, or even getting older, the grief that comes from realizing that you're not a kid anymore. And maybe you're a little bit more entrenched in the life that you aren't sure that you wanted. How do you measure these different markers of grief or help people process them?
1: I would call it maybe loss. Um, It is grief. But I think grief and loss permeate this book because it permeates our lives as much as joy does. They, They can coexist. And I think that's hard for people to understand that you can have these deep feelings of loss and also experience great joy at the same time. I think the, the story of Rita in the book, who is about to turn 70, and she comes to me because her adult children won't talk to her. They're completely estranged from her because of significant mistakes that she made as a parent. She's had some marriages behind her. She's extremely isolated. As opposed to Charlotte, the young woman, I have, there's a young woman in the book who sort of, she keeps hooking up with the wrong guys. Um, she can make better choices going forward right so she has this vast landscape in front of her but Rita has already made those choices so so much of her life has already happened and what do you do with that loss and also be able to create a future for yourself and that's the work that I do with Rita and I think that that's a really good example of how do we live with our loss that we can't erase and the significant pain that we can't erase but also move forward
0: And is there a good answer to that or a good beginning place for that
1: part of it, I think the beginning of it has to do with acknowledging the grief and not trying to get rid of it or push it away. That if you can integrate the loss into your life, as opposed to pretending it's not there, that would liberate you and give you the freedom to move forward as well.
0: That reminds me of a conversation I had with my therapist where I was, we were talking about the fear of getting older, the fear of the loss that comes with that. And, And it was one of those conversations which I'm sure you're familiar with as a therapist that seems very circular like you're just sort of going around and around the same things and she suggested that maybe sometimes when you circle around something that it's not a problem that can be solved you're looking for a solution of how can I not kill her and still be alive you know Um, whereas it's really just about accepting what has happened and moving forward does that sound familiar? Yeah,
1: there are problems that we can solve and then there are problems that for which there are no, I would say concrete solutions, but the solution might be learning how to live with it differently than you have in the past because sometimes the way that we're living with it is making our life much harder in the present. Because a
0: lot of our show is also about adventure and having an adventurous spirit. I wonder if you would tell your sperm donor story. And and really the question I was wondering is you're so direct, you're sort of so adventurous in that story that I thought it was kind of an interesting example.
1: This is a very long story. The the short version would be <laughs> yeah. I write it in the book so you can get the longer version there. Yes, please do. Um yeah, I was in my late 30s. I was 37 and I really wanted to have a baby, and I was worried about whether I would find the right partner in time, and so I used a sperm donor from a sperm bank and ended up having my child, but the, the process of finding the sperm donor was much more complicated than I had ever anticipated. The play-by-play of that is, is in the book.
0: Well, and you also ask a friend, don't you, if they would be willing to do this-
1: Well, it was even worse because it wasn't a friend. It was someone that I met for five minutes at a networking (laughs) event. So bold. So right. Um, and I sent him an email with the subject line, an unusual question, and asked if he would meet me for coffee. And of course, he had no idea when he got to the coffee place. It was, it was actually a coffee place called Earth Cafe, but Earth with a U, so U-R-T-H. And eventually, we started meeting there so often to talk about this sperm donor proposition that my friend started calling the place Spurth. <laughs> are you usually that
0: I mean that's pretty bold to do that is that sort of a part of your personality this bold forwardness in life
1: oh definitely not I I I just I you know I think that when you really want something you you do what you do you know that might be out of character because you're, you're being propelled by something bigger than yourself which I was I knew that I wanted to be a parent I knew more than anything. I knew in every cell of my body that that's what I wanted. It's not for everyone. I don't think everyone should be a parent. But I knew for me that's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And that's what propelled me forward. And I think it's the same thing when people come to therapy. And I I write about this also where I'm asking not just why they're here, but I want to know why now. Why this week, this day, did you call me when you might have been living with this situation for a long time because I'm looking not just for what's not working, but I'm scanning for strengths. I'm looking for what is working and one of those things might be their readiness. What is your what made you ready now? And I think at that point when I was 37, I was very ready to do this. There was there was sort of like it's now or never and I'm going to do this. Oh, I like that. All right. So to finish up, there's two other thoughts. There's so
0: many great thoughts in this book, by the way. I loved reading it. So everybody should go out and get a copy called maybe you should talk to someone it's out now one of the uh, things that you really do talk about throughout it both through your own experience and with the patients that you work with is that therapy is hard work like you would think that if you're just sitting around talking to somebody it's not that hard but I wanted you to read a little bit about how you um, how you talk about that because I thought it was really good
1: therapy is hard work and not just for the therapist that's because the responsibility for change lies squarely with the patient If you expect an hour of sympathetic head nodding, you've come to the wrong place. Therapists will be supportive, but our support is for your growth, not for your low opinion of your partner. Our role is to understand your perspective, but not necessarily to endorse it. In therapy, you'll be asked to be both accountable and vulnerable. Rather than steering people straight to the heart of the problem, we nudge them to arrive there on their own, because the most powerful truths, the ones that people take most seriously, are those that they come to, little by little, on their own. Implicit in the therapeutic contract is the patient's willingness to tolerate discomfort because some discomfort is unavoidable for the process to be effective. Or as my colleague said, I don't do you-go-girl therapy. And you also talk in another part about that you're,
0: you're working on planting little seeds along the way so that you're nudging them, but I love this concept of, no, you have to be the one that finds it. But it also raises the question for me, does that mean that as you sit across from somebody, you can sort of really tell...
1: What they need to be nudged toward I think it becomes apparent. So whatever people do with you in the therapy room They inevitably do in their relationships outside the therapy room. So it becomes apparent that Whatever the pattern is whatever the struggle is we want to help them see it and we want to help them see it in a way that they can understand it better so if I do it too early, if I bring something up too early, they've already got a defense around that. They've already got a wall built up around that. And if I say something too early, that wall's going to be even higher, and then I have a higher wall to scale. So you kind of drop little hints in along the way and you're gauging their readiness, and you do it as quickly as possible. It depends on where they are. And but you're helping to kind of plant the seeds right and you want to get the soil ready and so we're really making sure that we have optimal conditions because if it goes badly we might set people back and we we don't want to do that right And the C as you write over here about what makes it challenging what makes therapy challenging it is it is that it requires people to see themselves in ways they normally choose not to a therapist will hold up a mirror in the most compassionate way possible but it's up to the patient to take a good look at that reflection To stare back at it and say, oh, isn't that interesting? Now what? Instead of turning away. The way
0: that you wrote this made me think that the people I know that are very curious might be the type of people that would be, oh, how interesting. Let me look at myself. Is there any problem with people who are not curious people? Do you find people who really, really want to turn away? And
1: at what point, what do you do then? I think we all want to turn away. I think that's really (laughs) natural. I think I wanted to turn away in my own therapy. Again, because we choose not to see ourselves that way. And we tend to forget that in the story that we're telling, we may be the protagonist. But in other people's telling, we may have a different role. So I think it's really hard sometimes to see ourselves in the way that others do. But it's so helpful because it will help things go so much more smoothly for you. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of
0: end with this concept that you have about being your own jailer, that we are the ones that keep ourselves in these prisons that we sometimes so much want to be out of. <laughs> and so maybe if, if you'll indulge me by reading one more thing.
1: So in other words, therapy is about understanding the self that you are. But part of getting to know yourself is to unknow yourself to let go of the limiting stories you've told yourself about who you are so that you aren't trapped by them, so that you can live your life and not the story you've been telling yourself about your life.
0: I love that concept because we are all telling stories about who we are, you know, in the stories that we choose to tell and in the things that we decide to do, I guess from your own perspective, because it would be hard to to say, hey, listeners, here's how you can figure out what stories you're telling and which ones you could get past. But what did you discover in your own life about the story you were telling before you went into therapy and the story that you let go, I guess?
1: So I came in with a very specific story and I wanted my therapist to validate that story. And that's not what he did, which is the right thing. I talk in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. And I think he gave me not the idiot compassion of, yeah, you're right. Your boyfriend's a jerk, but the wise compassion of, I think you're grieving something bigger than just the loss of your boyfriend. And, you know, really being able to turn the story on its head like that to where it really needed to be. It's almost like I was telling him a subplot and he was saying, wait a minute, you missed the, the main thrust of the story.
0: If a person is not therapy and they're really working on this stuff, but what they're discovering, what they're realizing really could change who they are, uh, how it affects their family, particularly with some of the listeners who are just trying to get the courage to move or to quit a job. Those things can have really big effects on your family. Is there any way that you kind of let out what you reveal to your family in a way that everybody can kind of work together and you can be yourself even though you're starting to drop the story that you've been living even though it wasn't feeling
1: true anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? I think that what happens is somebody in the family goes to therapy and they start making changes and those changes affect the other people in the family. And it's not so much that you're sharing what you're talking about in therapy because that's often private, but I think it's about learning something about yourself and then acting in a different way And then almost like doing a dance, like if you do different dance steps, the people in your life will do different dance steps or else they'll just fall down on the dance floor. So they might object to your therapy because sometimes we sabotage people's growth because you know, we want them to be the sick one in the family. We want them to take on the role of the person who has the problems. And then if they don't have problems anymore, then, oh, no, you know, <laughs> what does that say about me? You know, like an alcoholic who stops drinking, suddenly people will be like, oh, you know, you can have just one drink. <laughs> or someone who starts eating healthy and exercising, oh, you're you're no fun anymore. You don't eat dessert. Yeah. Um, but I think that I think that often what happens is people make changes that make it better for everybody and ultimately one person's therapy helps everybody in that system
0: Lori Gottlieb is the best-selling author of this new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. It is currently in the top five of the New York Times bestseller list, and it's being made into a television show. She also writes the weekly column, Dear Therapist in the Atlantic, and you are a working psychotherapist, most important and foremost.
1: Yes, so I have a private practice in Los Angeles as well.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to spend the afternoon with us or the evening whenever anyone's listening. We really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having this conversation. And
0: until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Wait, 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 wait. One more thing. If after listening to this interview, you feel like you have just got to get your hands on a copy of this book, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks, I have good news for you. Thanks to our friends at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. They are going to give away two free copies to our listeners. The way to get those copies? Well, become a follower of ours on social media. We're going to give you an opportunity to throw your hat in the ring on Facebook and on Instagram. You can find us by looking for the Bittersweet Life podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at BittersweetPod. And if you're new to the show, this is not the first time we've had a New York Times bestseller on the show. We've had Hope Jarin, Jess Walter, Sherman Alexie, just to name a few. And there are lots of amazing thinkers and writers in our archives. So if you are new, don't be afraid to look around a little bit or even go back all the way to the beginning. We'll be here on the other side. If you're a longtime fan of the show, consider donating to it. Your donations are what keep us afloat. You can find a donate link at our webpage at thebittersweetlife.net. And please subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. But first and foremost, you want to get your hands on one of these two copies of this book, and that is urgent, Paramount. So go find us on Facebook and Instagram. Search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. Follow us and throw your name into the hat to get a copy of this book for free. Talk to you on Thursday. Bye. Thanks to Lori Lee Elliott for her help managing The Bittersweet Life on YouTube, and to Sarah Johnson for her consultation. Our logo is made by Jody Rick at The Lost Laboratory, with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net.